Well, we're continuing our series entitled A New Look at Grace. If you weren't here yesterday, just to remind you that we've read from the Bible already and learned that salvation, according to the Bible, is by grace, through faith, that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. We began yesterday by thinking of the fact that throughout this world, there are many religions and all of them teach that if you want to climb up the ladder of incarnation or get to whatever they call heaven, you have to put some effort in. You have to follow some rules. Do this, do that, do the other. They're all religions of works. Do this and God will accept you. But Christianity, the Bible is different. The Bible says no. You cannot do anything to save yourself. It's going to take God, the eternal creator of this universe, to come down from heaven and to take upon himself our humanity, become a man, and live a perfect life unlike us, and die a substitutionary death on the cross to save us. That's what it's going to take. And God is going to save us, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but as a free gift by grace. That's what grace means. It means kindness that we don't deserve. Vernon Hyam used to define it as unmerited favor to an undeserving people. That was his definition of grace. Kindness we don't deserve. And the Bible says it's by grace you're saved. If you're a Christian, God has done something amazing for you. Something wonderful. Something the whole of eternity in heaven is going to blow your mind. And you're going to sing about it forever. When you really grasp it. When you really understand what great things God has done for you. If you're a Christian. And what we're going to try and do this weekend. What we're trying to do is to understand. Even before we get to heaven. A little bit more. Of what has God done for me? in saving me as a Christian what if you're not a Christian here what can God do for you to save you as well so we've learnt so far that we cannot save ourselves God must save us salvation is of the Lord says Jonah and we've, we've used this illustration of a hand to, to remind us of five truths the Bible teaches which really show us that God has to grab hold of us and lift us out of our lost condition to bring us to safety, bring us to heaven. Uh, otherwise, we would drown in the ocean. You can see in the background of the slide there. And the first truth we learned is that we're not a bit lost. We're not struggling. We are totally lost. We are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. It's going to need a miracle of, of incredible proportions to bring us from where we were naturally dead in our sins, to where we need to be alive together with Christ. We learned, secondly, that God chooses to save us, not because of any merit in us, but unconditionally. God chooses to save me, you, and anyone here who's a Christian because of his kindness. Nothing else, no merit in us. We're chosen unconditionally. Thirdly, we saw yesterday that when Christ died on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, 
He had paid in full the price, the penalty, for all his people, right back from Abel, Adam and Eve's son, all the way to the last Christian who will believe before Christ returns. Christ paid in full for all his people. And so his death on the cross was successful. It was complete. And so the idea that he died for the whole world is only, only true if you say potentially. Because the offer of salvation is for the whole world. We are to go into the whole world and to preach the gospel to the whole world and urge men to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But effectually, Christ died on the cross for his people. God doesn't punish the same sin twice. Christ didn't suffer the punishment of unbelievers and then they get punished again in hell. That would be unjust. This morning we're going to look at the call. The call of Christ. How does God bring a person who is lost uh, into the knowledge of salvation? We're talking about, if you now like, the, the mechanics of conversion. I gave you my testimony. Timely. Uh, that's what we're thinking about. How does God call you? You could give me your testimony, couldn't you? And I could say, that's how God worked in your life. That's what we're going to think about this morning. And what we're going to learn is that God's call is irresistible. God's call is irresistible. So, how are God's chosen, redeemed people saved? That's our question. And the answer is God calls them. God calls them. That's the answer the Bible gives us. And what's calling? Well, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. God calls us irresistibly through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's when we experience salvation. I gave you my testimony. You could tell as I was lingering outside that room what was in that box. Humanly speaking, you could say curiosity drew me into that room. But I look back now and I say, no, why was I on my own on that occasion? Every lunchtime I was with my friends, but on that lunchtime I wasn't. Why was that? God overruled. I had to see that teacher. My friends left me. Why was I wandering around the school on that day, at that time? Why was I stood outside that door at just the right time? God was working all these things out for my good, for my blessing. God put that desire in me. I now see, as well as putting me in that place to go into that room to learn what the Bible does. And that calling is irresistible. And we're going to see how God changes us. He puts the desire in us to follow him. That's what we're going to learn today. So, conversion is a miracle. We've seen that already. It's like calling Lazarus out of the grave. Lazarus, come forth. And the dead live. We read Ezekiel, didn't we? 37. That's a picture, again, of conversion. God works in this world and in Poplar today to convert people through the Holy Spirit. Through the preaching of the gospel. To awaken the dead. And to put in them a desire to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow him. So let me ask you this morning. I don't know most of you. Is God at work in your heart? 
Have you heard the voice of Jesus softly pleading with your heart? That's what we just sung, isn't it? That's what Vernon Hyam said. It is him. Vernon Hyam preached the gospel every Sunday. He was a great evangelist. He wrote that hymn as an evangelist saying, to you who are not yet Christian, do you recognize God working in you? Has he shown you your sin? Has he given you a desire to read the Bible, to find out the answers to your questions? Is he drawing you? Is he calling you? If he is, be encouraged, be thankful. God is working in you, and that's a great blessing. So what's the truth we're looking at this morning? The truth declared is that God calls his chosen people with an irresistible calling so that they experience salvation. This is, as we've seen already, a logical continuation of the earlier truths we've looked at concerning salvation by grace. But it's also what the Bible teaches. Just think about calling for a moment. Some mums here today. Mums, have you ever cooked tea? And have you ever had to call the rest of the family and say, tea's ready? Has your mum ever done that, boys? Yeah? Uh, and do you sometimes charge down the stairs and you're really hungry and you sit there, knife and fork, ready to eat? Or do you sometimes, maybe you're in the middle of playing a game and you just want to get to level 30, whatever it is. And you're like, oh, I'm not quite ready for dinner yet. And you don't want to come. There's a kind of battle going on, isn't there? Mum's calling, but I'm not quite ready to go yet. My dear wife is sat in front of me laughing. She has this experience daily. Some respond to the call, don't they? Some, well, they're doing other things. And they don't respond to the call. But when you call, you're getting people's attention. Tea's ready. And then you get the names. Julian, Caleb, Matthew, have you heard me? Tea's on the table. Come down now. That's what we mean by calling, isn't it? That's calling, getting someone's attention, saying something to them, communicating, urging them to do something, come, eat, dinner's ready. Some people call you on your phone, don't they? I always have to remember to put mine on flight mode. It has gone off once when I was preaching, that was very embarrassing. But someone's calling you on the phone, aren't they? They want your attention. They want to speak to you. They're calling out to you. Stop what you're doing. Listen to me. I want to say something. When preachers preach the gospel, they are calling to the people. They're saying, God has a message. I'm the messenger. I'm delivering it to you. God says to you, you need to repent. You need to, to recognize your sin. You need to stop sinning. You need to reject it. You need to turn from it. All those commandments of God that you're breaking. And you need to trust in Jesus if you're going to be forgiven. That's the preacher calling. There's an outward call. My voice, wonderfully designed by God, is making the sound, the air in my throat and my mouth vibrate. And it's sending a, a wave through the room. 
So there's a pressure wave, a sound wave going from my mouth to your ear and it's causing your eardrum to vibrate and it's sending signals through your brain so you can hear my words. That's the outer core. A physicist can measure the outer core. But then there's an inner core as well. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's when the preacher preaches and you're sat there and you're thinking, this preacher's preaching to me. How does he know I do that? And why does he keep looking at me like that? How does he know that I'm not yet a Christian? And you feel all self-conscious. And you think, God's talking to me through this preacher. And he's telling me I personally have got to repent. And I personally have got to trust in Christ. And I can't just ignore this message because it's not just the preacher that's speaking. God's speaking through him. That's the inner call. That's the work of God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Have you heard the voice of Jesus softly pleading with your heart? According to the Bible, that inner call, that work of the Holy Spirit is irresistible. Irresistible. In other words, it's something you want. I don't know what you find irresistible. Uh, Ruth and I were wandering around by Canary Wharf yesterday thinking, where should we eat on Monday evening? It's our wedding anniversary on Tuesday. 31 years we've been married. So Henry's very kindly allowed us to stay a bit longer in London. And so tomorrow we're going to go to the British Museum and then we're going to go out for a meal in the evening to celebrate our anniversary. So where should we go? We're looking at the restaurants, we're looking in the winds. Ooh, that looks nice. Should we go there? I don't know if you are a savoury person or a dessert person. I don't know what you'd find. Oh, look at that. That is gorgeous. I love that. I don't know. I'm looking at the boys there. Is ice cream for you guys? Is it your sticky toffee pudding? What, what really gets you going? But... Some things are irresistible, aren't they? You think, oh, I want that. And God works in us by his spirit to say, I, I want that. that. That forgiveness, that salvation, that new life in Christ. Yes, I want to follow Jesus. I want to heed his call. It's attractive. When I was in that little Bible study... Uh, in my school and uh, Alan Boddington was talking about Jesus' death on the cross I wanted to know the answer to my problem how can I as a sinful boy stand before a holy God I wanted to be forgiven for the wrong I'd done I wanted to not be burned with the guilt and the shame I wanted to know peace with God I wanted to know Christ as my saviour And it moves us. It moves us to act. I went into that room uh, to, to attend the Bible study when the box was opened up. I bowed my head and prayed to God on the 16th of October, 1981. Not everybody in the room did. Not everybody in the room was saved. But God was working in me as a young boy to save me. And he can work in you too, in the same way. It's not forced. 
God doesn't kind of get your arm behind your back and go, I'm going to get you into heaven whether you like it or not. Even you think of Saul of Tarsus. He, he was he was a tough nut to crack, wasn't he? We thought about him yesterday. He was kicking against the pricks, wasn't he? According to Jesus, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the pricks, the pricks of the Holy Spirit, pricking his conscience. As Saul was reminded in the back of his head about the, the sermon Stephen preached before he was stoned. Saul had taken part in that murder. He was guarding the coats. He was fully behind every rock thrown against that, that man whose face was like an angel. And yet, what did Saul say? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Go to Damascus and wait there. I've got a job for you. Saul fasted. Saul prayed. Saul was blind. Saul was ashamed. Saul knew he'd been fighting against God. He wanted forgiveness. He wanted salvation. He wanted new life in Christ. He thought he'd been serving God. He wanted to serve God. Now, he really wanted to serve the true God in the person of the Lord Jesus. God changes us. I mentioned yesterday, didn't I? Conversion, converting a pub into a home, converting inches into meters. Conversion is a, is a radical change. Jesus said, unless you are converted and become like this child, you cannot see, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. God changes us, changes our desires, changes our, our, what we want as part of being called. And it's irresistible. There are three great forces at work in the hearts of men and women. One is your will, man's will. I don't want to do that. I want to do this. You don't have to teach, teach children to say that, do you? They, they've got their own ideas, what they want to do. One of the first words that normally comes out of a child's mouth is, No! <laughs> no! <laughs> I don't want to do that. Mum says, come this way. No! I want to go that way. Children have their own will, don't they? Adults are the same, kids. They're just the same. We all have our own will. I want to do that. That's the first force, your will. Second, the devil's will. We read yesterday from Ephesians 2 that the devil is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, we read in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. He, he's the, the prince of the power of the air. Jesus called him the ruler, small r, of this world. And we're, we're told that he is he's the one who, who imprisons us, who traps us. And his will is that if you're not a Christian here, he doesn't want you to become one. He wants to keep you in prison. He wants to keep you enslaved to him. He wants you to suffer in hell for all eternity alongside him. Because you bear God's image. And he hates God. And if he can't defeat God, the next best thing is to make men and women, boys and girls, made in the image of God, suffer with him. That's his will. That's his will. 
So the devil's at work. He's influencing you. Say, don't go to that church, Poplar Baptist Church. They might preach the gospel there. (laughs) You might get converted. There's a liberal church over there. You can go to that one. (laughs) Then there's God's will. God who is above everything, above everyone, above Satan. God who is above time. And God has a will. And God works to accomplish his will in this world. So the question for us is, if all those wills are kind of wrestling against each other, which one do you think will win? Who do you think is the strongest out of those three? You say, well, you don't know my little boy. He's got a strong will. (laughs) You don't know my mum or dad or brother or sister. They've got a strong will. And then you think, well, you look at the devil. Wow, he was strong. He is strong. The archangel Michael didn't rebuke the devil. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Then you look at God. And look at his power. He spoke. And this universe came into being out of nothing. He holds the universe in his hands. Every human breath in his hands. Not a sparrow falls to the ground except without his permission. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Wow. Who can compare with him? Who can compete with him? We are fallen. We are tainted by sin. So man's will is always going to be biased towards choosing those things that are wrong why do sinners choose to sin because they're sinful they have a fallen nature they're like a bowling ball you know they have a bias in them you try and bowl it straight it always bends doesn't it we're like that man's will will not save us the devil he wants to bind us keep us in prison but God wants to set us free Jesus illustrates this in Matthew 12 by saying how can uh, people be saved a stronger man needs to come and bind the strong man to set the captives free let's turn to that verse in Matthew 12 verse page 971 in the church bible Matthew 12 verse 29 Jesus has been accused of casting out demons by the prince of demons Beelzebub and he begins to say first of all that's ridiculous if Satan is casting out Satan his house is divided and then he goes on to say Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven are in this age or the age to come. Jesus speaks to these people who are saying, well, you're only casting demons by, by the power of the prince of demons. He says, no, no. What's actually happening here is that I am showing myself to be stronger than Satan. 
I'm the stronger man who binds the strong man and sets the prisoners free. Look at uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 18 with me. Jesus is in Nazareth here. He's in his local synagogue where he grew up. And he's taken the scroll from the scribe and he's found the place in Isaiah. And he reads from it. Isaiah 4 and verse 18, which is on page 1022. He's quoting from Isaiah when he says... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I've come to set the prisoners free, said Jesus. That's what Isaiah said I would do 600 years ago. Well, here we are today in the synagogue in Nazareth. And today, this scripture is fulfilled. That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus does, even today. Through the Spirit, he is setting the prisoners free. Let's look at John 8, 36. Page 1063. Jesus says, if the Son sets you free... You will be free indeed. Jesus gives real liberty to those who are otherwise in bondage to sin and Satan. So the biblical truths to these teaching. We're in John, so let's turn back to chapter 6 and verse 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Then verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets. And they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That was Jesus' teaching. God draws people. Irresistibly, says Jesus to me. Secondly, let's move on to Acts and see the example of Lydia. Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, which is on page 1099 in the church Bible. 1099. Acts 16 and verse 14. The Apostle Paul is on his missionary journey to Europe. 
his second journey. He's been called to Macedonia, what we would call northern Greece. He's in Philippi. And there's a woman at a Bible study by the river called Lydia. And we read this. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God, a God-fearer, a proselyte to Judaism. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. God opened her heart and she received the message of Paul and she believed. That's what the Bible teaches. Thirdly, Paul's teaching in Rome, uh, Romans, sorry, chapter 8. Keep working your way through your New Testament to Romans 8, page 11, 22. And we're going to read from verse 29, which is the next page, 11, 23. Romans 8, 29 to 30. In verse 28, Paul has said, God works everything together for good to them that love him, to them that are called according to his purpose. And this is the reason why, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul teaches that if God has chosen you, then God will call you. God will work providentially by his spirit to draw you to himself. Listen to Paul's testimony in Galatians and chapter 1, verse 15. Page 1154. Galatians 1, verse 15. This is Paul sharing a bit about his testimony, how the Lord worked in his life. Galatians 1, 15. But when he, that's God, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. So Paul there describes how God met with him on that road to Damascus and called him by his grace. And Paul now able to look back and say, this is evidence that I was chosen before the foundation of the world because God saved me. God saved me. And as we thought yesterday, the Thessalonians had this also, didn't they? The same teaching. Let's read 2 Thessalonians 2 to further see this. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13 is on page 1176. This is Paul's second letter to the Christians in Thessalonica. Again, northern uh, Greece. And Paul says, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification, being set apart, 
by the Spirit and belief in the truth. This, to this he called you through our gospel so that you might be, obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul talks about, again, their response to the gospel. We saw that, didn't we, yesterday in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And again in 2 Thessalonians here. Paul is reminding them of their conversion, how God worked to call them to salvation when Paul preached the gospel there. So as we conclude this morning, what does this teach us? How do these truths affect us? Well, if you're a young Christian, maybe you're thinking, will I be able to keep going as a Christian? There's a lot of pressures, a lot of problems in my life. God says, if God has called you and you've got on that train, then you will make it on your journey to heaven. God has worked in you. You can look back, just as I could look back and say, well, life may be difficult now. Yes, it's true, I don't know what the future holds. But if God has worked in me, then I have confidence he will keep me to the end. We'll learn more about that this evening. But understanding and recognizing the call gives us assurance. Older Christians too, as older Christians we can think, Will I make it to the end? Will I keep going? We can look back on our calling, our conversion, and say, he who began a good work in me, surely he will keep going. He will bring it to fruition at the end. As we look back and understand more, like Paul, as we just read in Galatians, or me, as I shared in my testimony, what God's done in our lives all we are, we're moved to praise and worship God, aren't we? We become worshippers of God. And we become evangelists. Do you remember the demoniac who had the legion of demons cast out of him? And uh, when Jesus wanted to go, get back in the boat, he wanted to go with Jesus. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> this man has set you free from bondage to thousands of demons. But Jesus said no. I want you to go back to your family. I want you to go back to your own people and tell them what great things God has done for you. So he did. He was from Decapolis, that region southeast of the Sea of Galilee. And we're told he went round sharing his testimony. That was how he evangelized. Listen to what great things God has done for me. When we grasp what God has done for us, and we use our testimony, we become evangelists for the Lord. Ezekiel 37 again reminds us that when we understand it's through witnessing, through sharing our testimony, preaching the gospel, that God saves others. We'll want to witness. We'll want to see others saved like us. God's chosen means is through the foolishness of the message preached. And praying that God would work by his spirit. If you're a seeker, if you're not yet a Christian, then God says, pray. You can't save yourself, but you can cry out to God for mercy like Bartimaeus did. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You can pray. Lord, help me to understand. Help me to believe. Help me to trust in you. When you understand these truths, we are both humbled and we are filled with awe and wonder and praise at God's amazing 
salvation. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling people personally, individually, in their lives, in their experience, meeting with them, whatever road they're on, whether it's the road to Damascus or alone in their bedrooms or whatever journey men are taking, you are pleased to meet with them and to work in them and to call them irresistibly to yourself, to change their hearts, to give them a desire to leave their sin and to follow Christ. Father, we pray today that you would continue to call men and women to yourself and add to your church such as should be saved. And may you have all the glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.